Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, I just want to welcome all of you today to my podcast. I love Fridays because I get to interview so many people. And um, one thing that I've learned in life is that everybody has a story. And I love to hear people's stories. I, I could absolutely sit all day and just listen to people tell me their story. And so today, all of you listeners are so lucky because I have my friend Lori on for this podcast interview. And I want to tell you, so <clears throat> I was asked before COVID hit, I was asked to serve on um, a girl's camp, like to work in the kitchen for girl's camp. And our fearless leader was Lori. <laughs> and so when we went to the meeting, our first meeting together, I just immediately felt connected to her. I didn't know her. I'd never met her. Um, to my recollection, but Lori, you have to straighten me out if I'm wrong. But anyway, I, um, I just was immediately drawn to her and over. So COVID then happened. We had to cancel girls camp. And, um, then we have and now have an opportunity to be together on a regular basis in other meetings. And I just love her. And I want her to share her story with you because I think it's so inspiring. And I also think that it will just help you see how much light uh, the Savior, the Spirit, and in, in our lives can literally transform our lives. So with that introduction, Lore, can you please hello. say hello? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I have, first I have to tell you the funniest thing that you brought that up about Girls Camp because that was the first time I had met anybody in our stake, um, which is our big area. Um, and when I met you, you were very energetic. And I don't know if I was having a bad day. I was nervous because I'm meeting with all these women I didn't know. And then I'm like, when we got into our own little group meeting for kitchen, I'm like, this woman has a lot of energy for life. And she is positive and she's going to be a lot of positive energy. And I don't know if I can do it, <laughs> but that, that was my first impression of you. And it wasn't until we re reconnected again, you know, a few months ago that I'm like, oh yeah, this woman has a lot of great energy for life. She's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry if I scared you. I can do that no. sometimes, you know? No. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Okay, so Lori, let's start because I want everyone to get to know you. And okay. there are things about you um, that I don't even know about mm -hmm. your life. So why don't you start out like where you grew up, a little bit about okay. your family, uh, the dynamics of your family, just go right into it. Okay. Um, so I'm the oldest of six girls. Um, there's 10 years between me and the youngest. So we, when we started to come, we came fast and furiously. I grew up in a very small town uh, across the river in Washington, and um, I didn't never realize how small this town was. I knew it was small, but I had no idea until um, I left years later. Um, I grew up with uh, my parents who were converts to the church. And um, how old so were they, they were when they joined the church? How old were you? Um, I was not born yet. I came right after they joined the church. They had okay. been married about nine years. So they were in their late twenties okay. when they joined the church. Um, and so right after I was born, I was nine days old when they moved us to where, to Washougal, which is where I grew up and lived my entire life. And I, it's like I said, it was very small at that time. I think there was 1100 people, 1300 people when I graduated high school. So my class of social life, everybody knew everybody. We had a very large church class, like all the kids that were my age, there had to have been more than a dozen of us, which for a small town is a lot of members of our church. And um, we all, we were all born and raised in Washougal essentially. So when I was Oh, three, five, seven. When I was seven, we moved from town 
to the country, which was a very pivotal point in my young childhood because we moved far away from all of my friends. I lived in a, I lived in a small little neighborhood where all the neighbors had kids and we all rode the bus together. We all, you know, did all this stuff together to where there were no kids quarter mile from the, to the closest neighbor. And it was devastating to me as a small child. Um, it was a great place to grow up, but it was devastating. And, and as I look back over my years, it it changed a lot for me. And, um, all of my friends were LDS. They were members of the church because that's what, that's what we had. That's what we grew up with. So um, my dad worked. My mom stayed home to raise us because there was a lot of us. And we grew our own food. We grew, we had cattle, we had orchards. We, um, we provided for ourselves, which we had to because my dad had a great job, but it was a very small income to have a family of eight. So that was, we worked hard. We worked very hard to provide for ourselves and for each other. We had hand-me-down clothes. I don't remember. We never went clothes shopping ever. We would go shoe shopping maybe once a year. And um, the funny thing is I had no idea we were poor. <laughs> um, I look back and I'm like, I had no idea. I mean, like we knew when money was, was low and, and when there wasn't much food in the pantry because our lunches at school changed, but we never knew that we were poor. And my parents never took advantage of um, the programs that were set aside for kids, like the free lunches and stuff. My dad felt, no, you know, we, we will provide for you and, and we will not, we will not take this hand out, which I thought was interesting and it kind of upsetting because I really wanted a hot lunch, but <laughs> hey, so did I, know. I want you to know <laughs> that I always envied my friends that had hot, um, hot, let's see. I always had hot lunch. My mm-hmm. friends had cold lunch. I always mm-hmm. wanted a hot lunch. Yep. Yep. So I mean, so a cold yeah. lunch. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I hated having the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day, which is what I still eat to this day. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, because of being in a really small town that didn't have a lot of movement, um, my friends were my best friends, are my best friends from, from kindergarten on up. So um, I have a lot of longevity in my friendships. And uh so yeah, so through grade school, it was pretty normal. It was a hard adjustment moving to the country and not ha- knowing anybody. But um, junior high is when my life really started to change quite a bit more. Um, I was always into sports. Sports were a very big thing for me. I played uh, volleyball. I played softball uh, often. Like that's all I did. That was my life. And um, so I did that all through junior high. But junior high, for some reason, I started to find a little bit more independence of sorts in my life where I was able to have a little bit more freedom. I don't know what spurred that from my parents. Um, but for some reason, I start, was able to make some of my own choices. And it got interesting. Junior high, does, it's an eye-opening for kids. Like There's things that we're exposed to at that age that is mind-boggling to me as an adult but it's real. Like I was listening to your pornography podcast the other day and talking about when, you know, people are first exposed to pornography. And I would think I was probably like 12 and it was at another member's house and we were at the neighbor's house and we found a box of magazines and, and that was my first exposure to it, you know? And, and so in a small town, everybody knows everything about you and, and it was just normal. It's just how it was. Um, I started doing band in junior high, I played the flute for seven years because I played it all through high school, marching band, symphonic band, all that kind of fun stuff. But I, so I was super social, very active in all of my, everything that I did and very social. But junior high also has a tendency to transition you through friends. Right. And I found that as I was getting older, there was definitely a division um, people talk about cliques and talk about things like that. And when a small town, you have your cliques, but at the same time, you're, you're all friends to one degree or another, but junior high kids were very mean to me and very, what, what people call now, they were bullies. 
And it was emotionally difficult for me because I was not a thin kid. I wasn't a tiny girl. I was a, I wasn't, I don't think I was necessarily overweight, but I was bigger. I'm a big boned. Like I'm, I am, a, I'm a thick girl. I'm solid. And so, um, and when everyone else is a different size than you, it makes it really difficult. Like body image was something I didn't really understand. And, um, I think my mom was too tired to really talk to me to a lot of those things about a lot of those things. And so those conversations just didn't happen. Um, but people picked on me all the time because of my weight and because my pants didn't fit because they were hand-me-downs. Um, I would have holes in my shoes and they, you know, kids make fun of you for everything. Right. But I found that um, I could take it pretty well, but I really had a problem when they would pick on other people. If it was me and somebody else sitting together and they would pick on me, that's fine. But when they picked on the other person, I had a real big problem with that. And that kind of came to, um, that's pulled through my entire life. Like, I don't care what you say about me, but you don't have the right to say this about someone else who can't defend themselves, which is key because we were never taught to fight. We were never allowed to fight uh, other people. <laughs> uh, siblings are different. Um so junior high, um, that's, like I said, it was, it was difficult and hard to manage. Um, I didn't feel like I had a, anyone to really talk to. And my, like I said, my mom was really busy with raising six kids. And my dad, because of the job that he did, he would work all day, come home for dinner, and then go back to work. And so we rarely saw my dad growing up. and. Uh, um, that's just who, that's just how we, how he did his job. So sixth, seventh, about seventh grade, I think it was between seventh and eighth grade was when I first tried alcohol, um, because it sounded something fun to do. We were bored, raided the friends, um, raided my friends, grandpa's beer fridge. He had a whole fridge full of beer. So we knew he wasn't going to miss a few. And it was disgusting and gross. And I tried to be cool and drink as much as I could, but it was the most vomitous thing I'd ever had in my life. So, <laughs> um, so that's kind of, that's kind of me through junior high is I'm starting to make a little more choices in my life, starting to understand things. Church was not an option and uh, not going to church was not an option in our home. We were not allowed to miss church. Every Sunday we were there. Um, when I turned 12, it was time for Wednesday night activities and that took priority. And there, we weren't given an option to choose anything else. If we had sports, if we had birthday parties, any other event was second place to go into church. So even if we were sick, we weren't allowed to miss church. Um, so getting into high school, I, and I was young in my class, I was I graduated when I was 17. I have a summer birthday. And so all of my classmates were older than me with the exception of one, um, one or two. And, uh, and so high school, I kind of was getting a little bit more trying to find out who my friends were and who I wanted to be with. My friends in church weren't very nice to me. They, they weren't mean, they didn't pick on me or bully me, but they weren't very accepting. And I couldn't share clothes with them. I couldn't, um, ha I couldn't have any of the same luxuries they were having. And so it was hard because let's do dress up and let's, let's do our hair and let's, let's try on each other's clothes. Well, your clothes don't fit. And it became a very depressing thing to be with my friends. And granted, I'm still friends with these girls today because um, life changes and right. you realize, you know, things are different. Right. Um but I was really struggling and to find people I could call my friends and a lot of depression. I was a very depressed teenager, um, very sad, very lonely. And that's hard to be lonely when you're in a family of eight, uh, you're surrounded by people all the time. Um, but there were lots of lots of thoughts and lots of attempts for, on suicide. And thankfully none of them 
pulled through. I didn't, I wasn't, I tried, but I failed. I'm okay with that. Um, but it wasn't until I was probably 14 and really struggling because I didn't have a testimony. I thought I knew the church was true, but that was really about it because I had a lot of really great youth leaders that I knew loved me, which was fantastic, but I couldn't really talk to them, but I knew that they loved me. Um, I started going to youth camps in Provo and oh, to like EFY. Um, it, it was, it was an etiquette camp. It was called Polish with pleasure and it was amazing. And it was, it was, it was really life altering. It was, it changed me so much for the better and really influences the person that I am today. And so that was a, that was a very pivotal point for me. And, um, yeah, it saved my life. So it was a week and you learned how to date and how to interact with the opposite sex and how to have fun and how to socialize and things like that. And it was ran by Brid, Brad Wilcoxon, Vivian Fox, not, no, Vivian, I can't remember last name. Anyways, they're amazing people. And Brad Wilcox, if you know him now, his, he's truly just fantastic. Yeah. And, um, and so they set up this camp designed to prepare young people for dating world and things like that. And that's full of devotionals and, you know, spiritual moments and things. It was something I looked forward to. The first year was their inaugural year that I went. So it was all new and we would have motivational speakers. And to this day, I can tell you exactly what this guy did. And when he did it, John, by the way, was a very big speaker. He spoke every year and he always got me excited because he was funny and he knew the gospel. And these camps taught me that there are other people who believe the same thing I do, but they are nice to me, you know? <laughs> um, and they... And they accept me for who I am and they don't judge me and they don't um, bully me or don't do any of these things. They're just excited to see me and meet somebody new. Um, and so the first year I did this camp, it was, it was fantastic. I had a lot of fun and it was something that, that showed me that I can be religious every day. I can say my prayers. I could read my scriptures and it's okay. And this is, this is a fun thing. People think it's fun. Um, we didn't have real scripture study in our home. Um, it wasn't until I was probably like 16 or 17 that we started doing it as a family. Um, and I don't remember ever being encouraged to have personal prayers as a teenager. I remember my mom doing them with the little girls. And, but I don't remember it being a, a focus in our family. Um, and so when I was 14, I was, I was dabbling quite a bit with drug use and alcohol and struggling with that because it took me away from my problems. So it was an escape for me. So how it, were you, you were going to these programs and then you were also struggling with the alcohol and drugs. So how was that? Was that just what, what was your mindset during that time? Um, de depressed when I wasn't, um, when I was depressed all the time, but what the church camp did for me is because there was church camp and there was girls camp and girls camp was still really hard, but it's very spiritual, but it's still really hard to, get along with the girls that I'm supposed to be friends with, but they're not really nice to me outside of the church environment. Like when we get out to be in school, they're not my friend, but when we're at church, they're my friend. And I really struggled with that. But the summer camps would give me enough high to get me through a couple months, like four or five months mm -hmm. to be yeah. positive, uplifting, you know, I feel like I'm loved. Um, so it was a kind of, kind of have to set me through it. This didn't sustain me for very long. Um, but yeah, so that camp went really well. I went back again the next year and by the each year of my life, right. My drug and alcohol use would kick up a little bit. 
Um, and as a 14 and 15 year old, it's really hard to get drugs and alcohol <laughs> when you're that young. So we got super creative. Um, but again, these are people who loved me for who I was and didn't care and didn't judge and um, were just happy that I was there. And, and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll pull something back into this a little bit later. But um, the second year I went back to this camp, was very excited. I also did a couple other camps while I was out there, some sport camps and things. Um, I had the most amazing experience. We had a camp counselor who she was doing her nightly devotional and she kind of did um, like a self-reflection. We all closed our eyes. We imagined this serene, beautiful area, a lot of mindfulness, and she's talking us through, and it was very spiritual. And it was the first time I ever felt that I was loved by God. And it was very overwhelming. It still overwhelms me to this day. Um, but something that, that it was is she's like, imagine he's standing there next to you, and he reaches out, and he gives you a hug. And that embrace, I could, I could literally feel. And that's a pivotal moment for me because it's the first time I felt loved by someone who would do anything for me. And I knew that. I knew the doctrine of the church. I just didn't feel the doctrine of the church. And that changed my life um, and stuck with me because it was so ingrained in my memory and I could visualize all of this. And it's, that was the first bit of light that I had in my life. Um, and it, it's, that stayed with me a lot longer. And I could not shake that feeling of being loved. So I started, I think I was 15 when that happened. Yeah, I was, I had, was turning 15 that year. And so I would start on a path of, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to be better. I'm going to try harder um, and all these things. And I would for a while, but it's really hard when all of your friends do take, make bad choices. It's hard to be the one to make the good choices, especially when the friends that are making good choices have kind of written you off um, because you don't have the same values anymore. And that was really hard. I remember one of my, um, one of my best friends who didn't drink or do drugs or anything like that. She told me, she's like, I can't be your friend because you're making bad choices. And I thought, that's wrong. You should be my friend through my bad choices. Um, but it was devastating to me. Um, and that made me want to earn her trust. I don't know what exactly it was that I lost, but it wanted me to try harder to show her that I can make good choices. I can be a good person. I can live a righteous life. And she was not a member of the church. She had a different church that she went to. So this struggle goes on, um, well, really goes on for many years after that. Um, I, as I got older, I, I was hired for my first job two weeks before I was 16, but I couldn't work until I started, till I turned 16. So on the day of my 16th birthday, I got a job, which fueled um, all sorts of kids, because now I have money to spend on whatever I want. I my, um, again, my parents were very busy and I was responsible for taking care of my siblings, which was hard because I didn't want to, because I didn't like them because they didn't do what I told them to. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so there was a lot of, there was still a lot of anger and a lot of animosity being at home. And so I did as much as possible as I could to not be at home. I worked a lot, babysitting jobs, my, my first job at taco time, which I loved, um, and still loved to this day. And, uh, yeah, I'd only be at home if I absolutely had to, and I'm still playing sports. I'm still, um, still doing my, my flute doing band at this point. I'd also taken on doing, I was doing statistics for the boys basketball team. Um, I always kept myself very, very busy. I felt like as I look back now, it was more of just a distraction. So I didn't have to deal with what was going on and still could not miss church, could not miss Wednesday night activities. Um, Did any of your leaders come up to you and ask you how you were doing? 
Did they, was there something that was giving you a source of light through the choices you were making? Um, there were glimpses, you know, I, I had really great youth leaders that if I, if I can recall anything about them, it was how much they loved me, unconditionally loved me. I'm sure they saw something amiss. There's no way, being an adult now, I can look at youth and I can say, oh, something's not quite right there. I'm sure they saw it. Um, and whether or not they knew how to address it was really the key. These are things that kids got into that I don't think anybody really addressed. I don't think they talked about it. You know, that's how they dealt with a lot of things in the churches. We're not, we're just not going to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, you know? Um, and it was, and, and there was, there were some people in our, in our ward that were very catty and very gossipy. And so that was also doing a lot of damage to me because um, I'm trying to trust these youth leaders and at the same, or adults, I'm trying to trust these adults. And at the same time, there are also some of them were the same adults that were tearing me down. And I'm like, if you don't think I hear these rumors, you're wrong. And it doesn't matter if they're true. You shouldn't be talking about a child like this. And that was really hard for me because I was told to respect my elders and to listen to these parents and, and whatnot. Um, and it was, it was just difficult to trust anyone. I didn't talk to anybody um, about my problems one of my friends that I got in trouble with all the time, her mom encouraged it. <laughs> you know, she said, just don't, don't do something stupid and don't get caught. You know, that was her advice to us, which, you know, one night as we were walking out the door, she's like, don't go to jail. Don't get pulled over and don't go to jail. Well, that was exactly what happened. We didn't get booked in jail, but we definitely got in a lot of trouble. And so that was the, that was, she was our most supportive adult and she was doing all the same things we were doing. Um, but the youth camps were what gave me those, those little bits of light, Glimmer little of light. glimpses of mm -hmm. hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and doing things collectively in a group, like we did, um, it was, uh, the young women used to put on programs in our sacraments. Uh, meetings where it, the whole hour would be the young women singing and giving talks and doing all these very spiritual things and those left very large impressions on me to see girls that I knew were also struggling were also going partying and doing the same things I was doing to be touched by what I now know is the spirit being overwhelmed with the spirit and making a change in their life and I saw that but I didn't know what it was my growth in the church was I wasn't educated enough on it. Like I didn't understand it. I'd go to seminary or early morning seminary and I would sleep through it because I was up all night and um, I didn't get a lot out of it. There was a couple of times where we had great teachers that were able to teach us well. Um, and I remember the lessons and um, really the only thing that got me through all of this were was the hugs I would get from people I would see because I could tell I could tell from the hugs that these people were giving me that they loved me and they were they cared and I had a reason to live because I was my my later teenage years finding reasons to live was very difficult um and so I cleaned up for a while I think it was six uh, 16, 17, I actually went through an AA program for the first time. And um, it was great because I got to recognize a higher power. And I wasn't sure if it was God, although it made the most sense, but I was able to put my faith in a higher power. And it was hard because on and off, I was going through the repentance process on and off as well. Um, and it didn't, it just didn't do anything for me, but going through AA and recognizing this higher power kind of hit a button. I had to tell my parents what I was doing because I was a minor. I had to be honest with them and I didn't want to be honest, but I did start to find a lot of support through the church in ways of um, working through my addictions, which at that time I wasn't 
sorry, completely convinced that I had an addiction I, or any addictions. I just, I just like to drink and I like to smoke a little pot and do whatever else comes down the line. Um, but I had some really good bishops in place that kind of guided me through the process and helped out a lot. So um, as I turned 17, I, my senior year in high school, I started to really get my act together. Um, my junior year in high school, I was dating a boy who I thought I was going to marry, um, was convinced like my mom and I wedding planned for, you know, the, the day after graduation, we were going to get married and he was religious and I would attend his church often. Um, and so I started to get back into that. And meanwhile, through all of this, I'm still not allowed to miss church. I'm not allowed to miss my Wednesday activities and I'm not allowed to miss Sundays. So I'm still going to church through all of this, but I ended up finding spirituality through other means as well. And um, so with him, I would go to my church, I would go to his church, I would do my activities and we do his activities. And so I was getting a lot of religion in my life, which was useful. And we broke up and it was devastating, but I still continued that path. And, I, and then I decided I wanted to go to Rick's. So I decided to go to Rick's, which means I had to clean up my act completely, which took longer than I had hoped. But um, I was doing the repentance process. I was um, more active in church. I was trying to read my scriptures. That was a big thing to actually read my scriptures every day and pray and do all this stuff. I was trying to be nicer. And by this point too, my parents had actually started doing uh, nightly family scripture. And so we would uh, read our scriptures all together right after dinner. And I think that changed. And when my mom talks about this moment, she talks about how terrified she was because she had these teenagers and my sister younger than me was a bit more aggressive and a bit more angry than I was in life. So she was really difficult for change. And she, my mom was terrified to have to ask me who was completely um, trying to distance herself from the family. And then the other one who's angry all the time to have them say, no, we're going to read scriptures every day. Um, and my mom was shocked because we were open to, to the suggestion. And I think that also started to change that, that helped me study a little bit more and read a little bit more. So, and just a side note, I talked about these church camps that I did um, and they were really pivotal, pivotal, pivotal in my staying true to the church. And I, we, they would give out these handouts and little uh, spiritual thoughts on these cute little pieces of paper they would do up. I still have a binder that has all of those things in it that I've saved over the years because they meant something to me. They meant I wasn't alone in my mind. Um, so yeah, so I cleaned up my act and got accepted into Rick's and I started in the fall or in the winter. And it was, it was really good for me to be out of my small town and realize that there's people all over this world that believe the same thing I do, but aren't as closed-minded necessarily as as where I grew up and it was fun we had we had a I had a great time being in school and learning that oh it's not okay to do this and it's not okay to do that if you call yourself a member of the church okay so I gotta I gotta start you know kind of changing who I am because that's kind of who I wanted to be and so I went to school for winter and then a couple summer terms and I came home and I worked and, and I, I stayed, kept my nose pretty clean the first year and second year in college, not so much. Um, I did fine while I was at college. It was when I was home because the hardest thing to me to get over was when I got home to Washougal, I should have a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And that is, I should roll into town like that and stay that way. And so that made it really difficult to change that mentality even coming off of a high of having daily devotionals at church or at school, having to take a religion class every day. Um, religion's still around me and it's still, I'm doing it every day, but I'm just not getting it. Like I'm not getting that aha moment of testimony, if you will. And it wasn't until my second year in college and I was studying the Book of Mormon, I had an amazing teacher 
And I kind of, I got that, oh my gosh, this is true. Everything that I've been trying to understand, it's true. And I got it and it clicked. And I thought, yes, I'm done. I'm golden. I ain't got to worry about this no more. I will never falter again. And that was, that was just ignorant of me to think. <laughs> but um, who was yeah, your, so who was your religion teacher? His name was Hammond. Ah, uh, Todd Hammond. Yes. <laughs> he was, I was in his class too. He was fantastic. Well, I, yes. I took him for all my religion classes because I absolutely loved how he, how he taught religion. He was in my ward actually when Matt and I got married. Oh my goodness. I'm kind of jealous a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided, look, I'm, I'm, this is it. I've got a testimony. I'm mm -hmm. solid. I'm not going to fall away. What happened yep. as the years started passing? Um, it was, it was the people who I surrounded myself with. It really came down to that. I mean, my first couple of years when I was there, I or my first couple of years, it's only a two year college. My first year there, I had great roommates. I had great support. Um, I was have, able to have a little bit more mature conversations with my mom, but I was finding, I was becoming an adult. And so I was finding there were things that I could talk about with everybody. And I would, I would talk a little bit about my drug and alcohol abuse. Um, but it was scared me a little bit because I wasn't sure who was going to judge me and who wasn't. But, uh, my second year there, I got my, my roommates weren't as great. They weren't as, um, straight lined. And so we got in trouble all the time. We were on the Dean's. We were, we, we were, um, what were we, what did they call it? We got in trouble. We had meet with the Dean every week. We were on suspension and it wasn't pretty, but, um, that didn't quite support my behavior of wanting to do everything right. And so, um, when I got back, I graduated moved back home, um, tried to live there for a little bit. It didn't go well. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to move to Boise to finish my education. Um, last minute decided not to move to Boise. My, my roommate from my first year there convinced me to move to Salt Lake, to move to Provo, live with her. Everything will be great. We'll do every, It'll be tons of fun. There's all these Mormons, all these LDS youth. It'll be so much fun. So I did that instead. And that proved true for about three months. And she got married and moved to Boise. And I was so annoyed. <laughs> She's like, just come with us. I'm like, your mom and dad just sold their house to move with you. Your sister's moving with you. I'm not, I'm not trekking all over the U.S. for you. I love you, but no. Um, and even being in like, I, I think it's funny because this is how we think. The Mecca of, of Mormon religion being in Provo and Salt Lake. Um, I did not have any good influences around me once she moved. Um, and I struggled. I couldn't find my footings religiously. I never, I, I really struggle letting people in, getting to know people. And I really struggle, feel comfortable. So I'll walk into a new ward or to a new church building and it, I won't feel comfortable. It's very uneasy for me and I won't get to know people. And so therefore I start to feel alienated. I feel unwanted and I start all these negative feelings start to profess and it's really easy for me to walk away and just be okay, done. Nobody cares. I'm just going to stop going and I'll find people who do care. So in Salt Lake, I moved to Salt Lake after my roommate got married and I just, like I said, couldn't find that good fitting. And so that started a lot of really dark years for me and within my, and I had been clean. I had been clean this whole time. I think it was on about two years, which was a big deal because as long as I'd ever been clean. Dated a guy who um, kind of screwed that all up. And I recognized it was my choice. It had nothing to do with him. It was his lifestyle that he led and I was okay with him leading it. And I led my own clean lifestyle, but I broke and I got angry at him. And I thought, oh, I'm going to show you, I'm going to drink you'll see what you'll see what I'm not supposed to do and it was stupid but that's that was my choice and that led me down a, a really dark tunnel of of drug and alcohol abuse way more than what I'd ever done in high school because I'm exposed to so many different things as an adult um you know it was it was dark 
Did you have any moments of light? Did anyone intercept you? Did you? No. No, nothing. I mean, I um, I didn't call home anymore. Um, and or if my parents called, I would avoid their their call because I I'm sure they would have known. I'm my mom. I'll never forget. This is when I was a teenager, and I laughed at her and thought she was freaking nuts. And oh my gosh, she was dead on. <laughs> so she picked me up from my friend's house where we would get high and drink all the time. And she was frustrated because I was I was just blown out of my mind and I usually would wait before I would go home I would make sure I was coming down off of my high before I would go home and this time I couldn't and so she got really angry with me and she's like I just feel like every time you go to her house that I'm just handing you over to the devil and I'm like you are a crazy woman she was so right um and it felt so bad because I'm pretty sure I mocked her and she was so on point because that's literally what she was doing but she didn't know what else to do it wasn't her fault but um but yeah so i just i i knew if i alienated my family i would have less accountability because i didn't know anybody in utah um other than the friends i was creating and so there was nothing i would go home for christmas but i worked retail and in retail you don't get christmas off and so if i flew home it was i'm flying home christmas eve night and flying back the day after Christmas, early in the morning. So I would maybe spend 24 hours with my family. And so there's, there's not any accountability. They don't know what's going on. They probably, they just know something's going on because I've disconnected myself from them. Um, and yeah, so that's. How many years did this go on? Um, we dated for about two and a half years and, um, on and off and sporadically. But it wasn't, it was after, it was, it was actually an event with him that changed me. I had, uh, he had moved across the country and um, I don't think if I mentioned this in class, but um, another guy that was with us, we'd gone out partying and one of the guys that we had met was, he said it was a friend of his, um, overdosed. And it was, we had to drive him to the emergency room. He had OD'd and we were driving and my, my boyfriend at the time, he was driving. We're all high. We shouldn't have been driving for one, but he, this guy was dying. And all my boyfriend wanted to know is, what's it feel like? How do you feel? Do you see a light? He was more concerned about this guy dying, what he was feeling and going through than the fact that he was actually dying. And I realized at that moment, he doesn't care about me. I thought all these years he cared. He's going to be more concerned about what I'm experiencing as I'm dying than trying to save my life. And granted, I was, there was no way I could have had that thought on my own because I was so blasted. Um, and that, that hurt and also was eye-opening because that night also something had happened to me that could have put me in a really bad position in a really bad place. And I was told to get up and get out of the car and move. And had I not done that, I don't know what happened, but I know that that wasn't, I I know that had to have come from above to get me out of a bad situation. This all happened the same night. So when I got home from that trip, I realized my life had to change because if this guy who's supposed to care about me the most is going to be most concerned about the process of my death than saving my life, I'm not in the right place. So I started to make changes. At that time, the church had just rolled out an addiction recovery program. And so I went to my bishop and said, hey, I need to clean up. I don't know how to do it. I need a lot of help. And he was an amazing bishop. And he said, I'll do whatever you need. Just tell me. If, we, if you need to go to an inpatient, we'll pay for it, you know, because I was, I was living paycheck to paycheck or less, you know, and so I couldn't afford therapy, I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford a, a program. And so uh, he said, there's this addiction recovery program that the church just started. Here's all the dates, try and go. And so I did, and it changed my life. How did it um, change your life? 
realizing that there's other members of the church that are struggling with this. And this program was set up specifically around the gospel and the higher power wasn't some spirit, spirit in the sky. It was God. It was just very defined. This is God. This is Jesus Christ. This is what they've done for you. This is how we want to get you back. And this is how you do it. Um, and it was, it, 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 I had, like I said, I've been to AA and I've been a couple times and I just struggled with that higher power thing because I felt that there really was a God. But this, this class allowed me to see that I'm loved and I'm not struggling alone. And these are outstanding members of the church who have the same struggles. And I felt accepted with my trials where before I'd never felt accepted. So I was able to talk about it. Um, and I had a therapist who just did everything right, but he did nothing at all, which is so weird because I didn't want to talk about religion. Granted, I'm trying to go back to church. I'm trying, I'm doing all these religious things, but in my therapy, I didn't want to talk about religion. I just wanted to talk about other things. And he was amazing. He really helped turn me around a lot. Um, he's the one that helped me realize that and, and not help me. Didn't He didn't prompt me or anything, or he didn't lead me to this conclusion, but the conversations we had led me to this conclusion that I always blame my parents, my parents for everything. It was always my parents' fault. It was everything they did was, it was their fault. That's why I'm an addict. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And they're the reasons why I don't feel loved and this, that, and the other. I always wanted to blame them, but I realized, you know, they did the absolute best job that they could given the circumstances they had and the upbringing they had. They knew nothing about raising children. I don't think anybody does, but let alone six of us, they did the absolute best job they had, they could do. And I, and I knew that I felt like it was testified to me and it allowed me to let a lot of that anger go. And as I'm going through this, I'm going to church more. Um, I'm connecting more with the people in the church. Um, and the biggest problem I was having, and this is where we talk a lot about how the light, it just takes that little glimmer of hope to, to, you know, to shun up the darkness. And I was having a really dark week because these classes, I went to the ARP classes almost every day. Um, the AA program has a 30, 30 meetings, 30 days kind of set up where you go to a meeting every single day for 30 days and it's a big accomplishment. So I made that a goal of mine that I would go to the ARP class one every day now ARP because so they 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 did it every day in Utah yeah they had they had classes all day long every day so I could go on a Tuesday at noon or I could go on a Wednesday at 10 a.m or I could go to Thursday at six o'clock like they had them all day long every day and so um so yeah, so I realized when I was having a really hard time being depressed, like I said, depression was a hard thing for me as a kid and it never leaves. And I was driving down um, 7th East, which is a big fairway in Salt Lake. Cause at this time I lived downtown Salt Lake. And I was like, how am I going to be happy? You know, I thought drugs and alcohol gave me my happiness and I struggled trying to figure that out. And then the sun was out. It was a beautiful day in Salt Lake. And I just realized that I don't need anything in this world except for this moment right now to be happy. And that changed all of my outlook. And I realized that, that that's the way that God talks to me. That's how he, that's how he communicates with me is he shows me the things that are right in front of my face. He shows me all my answers. And then that sticks with me for, for my lifetime. Um, and so as I progressed, I got much better. I, my life just turned around completely. I became very active back in the church. I was, um, I'd also, so from moving to Utah to this point, my, to having gone through the dark stage, I had actually gone through the temple and received my endowment. So I was endowed at this time. So that throws in a lot of guilt, but once I worked hard to, to gain my temple recommend back, if you will, Mm -hmm. I went to the temple every week. I lived four blocks from the Salt Lake City Temple and I went every week. And that was my lifesaver because as I changed from one life to another, I 
Satan loves idle hands and they teach us that, you know, and on my days off, I was feeling very idle. I, um, I lost all of my friends that I had had when I was living in Salt Lake because all of them used. Um, there was a couple who said, we don't, there was one, one guy who's like, I don't care what you do. I love you for who you are. And if you decide you're going to clean up, great. If you decide you're going to be drunk and high all the time, I don't care. He's like, I just love you for who you are. And that was pivotal for me. So going to the temple every week, huge blessing, huge, huge, huge blessing. Um, again, scripture study was not a big thing for me. Um, I didn't really get it. I didn't understand the importance of it, but being active in happiness is the best way I can put it. That's what's, that's what brought me my life was being happy and realizing that it's a choice. Happiness is a choice you make. Yeah. And, um, that's my life. So and how have to- you, how have you been able to stay clean and sober over the last several years? Um, it, that's a great question because I lived in, when I, when I did this in Utah, I, there was a great support system because like I said, classes were every day, all day long. Um, and when I was about maybe two years sober, again, two years was the longest I'd ever been sober and all the times I'd tried to clean up. So I think I had just hit my longest ever mark of being clean. I moved, I moved back home, which does a lot of damage to me, but I still try to make the temple important. And then I moved to Seattle and I'm like, if I can just find a class, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Find an ARP class, I'll be fine. Because there was a lot of strength in that class. There was a lot of support, a lot of love, and a lot of strength. Um, they didn't have these classes outside of Utah. <laughs> so it was, it was devastating to me. And um, I had to find the strength within to decide, make the I really came to a point where like, what I have to make a choice. I have to make a choice if this is going to be the rest of my life or not. And what do I want? And one thing that I, I used to do, someone told me when I was a youth, you know, we, they talk about patriarchal blessings, which is a blessing. I think you've talked about it. Um, it's a blessing that we receive from a priesthood member who's been it's a blessing just for us. It's our own personal roadmap is what I've been told. And so I would read that every so often when I would get frustrated or upset or discouraged and struggle. And I would just hold strong to it. I'm like, hey, these are the things I've been promised. If I choose to live my life right, I need to make that choice to live right. Um, so I tried to find LDS members. I tried to find just to surround myself with. I worked a lot. I worked on average, probably 70 hours a week. So I didn't have, on purpose, so I didn't have a lot of free time. But I would try to surround myself with young single adults. Um, And I had to make a very active effort. It wasn't something that came easy for me at all. It wasn't comfortable for me, but I had to make that choice. And it was that, or go back to this dark pit of despair. And I knew I didn't want to be there. So how many Um, years has it been since you had that night and now how many years has it been? I don't want to say, because then it means I'm older than 28 and I'm 28. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I, it's, so it's funny because I honestly, I, I don't think I could tell you. I think it's probably, it's, I think it's been around almost 20 years, maybe 18 years. And this is why I can't tell you. Okay. Tell me why. I was, um, I was part of, well, part of the ARP, one of the ARP classes, someone had talked about how the AA does the medallions, you know, for every year that you're sober, you get, you get a medallion or your five-year mark. And it's a big deal. Like they really celebrate this in the AA program. It's not a bad thing. Um, it's a great thing for a lot of my friends, but um, this guy was talking about, he's like, but that's not a, what it's about the day I got sober, that's not what my life is. It's every day after that. And it's not important how long I've been clean. What's important is that I'm clean. That doesn't define me. And so from that point, I stopped keeping track. 
I love that. Lori, that's so good. I've learned that it doesn't define me. And what I've done with my life since being clean is what is what is who I am. Yes. Thank you. I will never ask that question again. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I don't really know. And plus all those years were a blur. I have a rough estimate. Oh, Um, I love it. Okay. Well, tell me as we kind of wind the the interview up, mm -hmm. how do you seek light every day now? Um, Now, as of... I would say probably two or three years ago, it's changed. So I'm also, I've also been married to my husband for only a couple of years. And that was another thing. My patriarchal blessing, reading that often has been the biggest, um, the biggest beacon of light for me. I believe it to be true, but I believe I have to do my end of the bargain for these things to come true. Um, but if in the last few years, if, and even before that, deciding that this is the life I'm going to lead. This is how I'm going to be happy. This is the choices I'm going to make. Um, and it, it, making that choice. Okay, so if I'm going to make these choices, how do I get the results that I want? Well, they, they talk about this thing called scripture study every day. And maybe I should figure out what that really is like. And maybe I should understand that. And I have. And the um, there's been challenges through bishops and through prophets to read the book of mormon and it's a great book read it you know and i never really jumped on that wagon until about um four or five years ago one of the uh, president monson i think sent out a challenge for all of us to read all the women in the church to read the book of mormon it was like within like an eight month eight week period and i did it i was so proud of myself and i really felt this book had more to offer because like i said back in college I was, I was in my Book of Mormon class, and that was the first time I realized that, yes, this is all true, and if it's true, I want to learn more, and so a couple of years ago, I just said, I need to do scripture study every single day, and so I do. I That is my light. I study, I don't, I pick different things, because I like to follow what the prophets tell us in co- general conference, and I like to listen to what they say, and if they say, research the priesthood, I'm going to spend however long researching the priesthood in my scriptures and it's not just the book of mormon i read them all um and that i i don't i might read one scripture a day and sometimes i read four or five and sometimes i read a chapter depends on what i'm studying at the moment i found that i say um specific prayers i every morning i write a list of people that i'm praying for and i say very specific prayers for just those people. And then I take time to be grateful for the things I've been given. And that has helped maintain a lot of my life. Um, I'm still very, I'm active. I made a choice. I had to be active in my church. I actually wasn't for a long time, even though I was clean. I said, I don't, I don't want to go to church anymore, but I'll still be clean. Um, because I knew that being clean was the more important choice to make. And I've struggled I've struggled so much, even with being clean for as long as I've been clean. Um, when Oregon changed their liquor laws, I think it was Oregon or Washington. Washington changed their liquor laws. I was living in Washington. And you could buy hard alcohol and wine in the grocery stores. And I struggled for months. I couldn't go to the grocery store. I ate out every day for like five or six months because I couldn't I, I couldn't walk through the liquor aisle in the grocery store. Um you know, the legalization of marijuana has been horrible because it's so much easier to get. And, but I keep holding on to the things of, I actually have a testimony now. Um, I do my best to share my testimony as often as I can. And I would go to the temple. I used to be a temple worker and that helped as well. But I found that it's not so much sharing. It's sharing happiness. That's where I get my life from. And that is what continues to help me day to day. My job makes it hard to be happy sometimes or to share it, but I've made the best relationships from doing just that. And that's contagious. Happiness is contagious. And um, that's, that's what I focus on. And when I start to dwindle, I start to increase my efforts in doing more gospel things. I listen to general conference talks every day. Um, 
on my way home from work to decompress. Actually, right now I'm listening to you every day. But <laughs> <laughs> thank but, you, Laurie. Yeah, but it's surrounding myself by those good things, um, no matter what form they come in, as long as they're good, uplifting, powerful things that teach me more about my relationship with Heavenly Father and His sacrifices. And and I know it makes a difference. I I hope to be the adult and the leader with our youth that they feel comfortable coming to me, you know, or they feel like they're loved because I know that's what probably saved me as a kid um, because love is important. Love and happiness are very important. And so I just strive. I make very conscious decisions every day to make that a point. Well, I want you to know that you are a light to our group and I'm so thankful that I have come to know you and I like I said in the beginning everybody has a story and your story of finding help and the gospel and light is an inspiration so I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview today I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.